The following audio is from a sermon series called Recalibrate. In this sermon series, we take a look at the DNA of Sacred City Church, the identities and rhythms that are given to us in the gospel, and how we live together in community and on mission. For more information on Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 2 Corinthians 5, 13 through 21. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. We are in a series called Recalibrate, uh, and this series is designed to bring us back to the fundamentals of Sacred City Church. Now this week uh, was reporting week, if you pay attention to baseball, pitchers and catchers reported. And in this season, in the preseason part, really what teams are working on are the basics, right? The fundamentals, how to throw a ball, how to catch a ball. In a sense, this series is, is like that for us. We're going back to the fundamentals, back to the basics. We're reestablishing our identity in Christ that we receive in the gospel. And as we do this, what we, what we see here are, are in our identity, rhythms are generated. And as we live out of this identity, we, we live in these rhythms. And in collectively living out of these rhythms or in, in doing these rhythms together, we create a gospel culture. Now, last week we started talking about uh, identity, and really what's helpful to understand that in life there are, there's two competing philosophies on identity between society and the gospel. Our society says your identity comes from doing. Your doing establishes being. And so in this sense, your identity is wrapped up in what you do. If you achieve something, that is where your identity is. If you fail something, that's where your identity is. But in the gospel, your identity isn't wrapped up in what you do. It's wrapped up in what Christ has done. Now, this is liberating because it means that we don't have to be defined by our failures, by our successes. We don't have to keep striving to be something. It's by faith that we can rest. Our identity is permanently cemented in Christ. This means it's secure. That that though we are inconsistent in our faith, in our walk with Jesus, because he was secure and steadfast, that is where our 
consistency comes from. And what this means is that we don't have to try to prove ourselves any longer. I feel like that's a lot of what our lives are spent doing is trying to prove ourselves to one another, trying to prove ourselves to ourselves, and ultimately trying to prove ourselves and our identity before God. But because of the gospel, we are freed from this striving. And with that, we're freed from this constant self-critique, right? You're not good enough or you could do better or try harder or whatever that looks like. Now, this is all because Christ's righteousness in the gospel is mine. Colossians 3 says that, that in Christ, that as believers in Jesus, my life is hidden with Christ in God. That his life is my life, my life is his. And in this sense, our identity gets a complete overhaul in the gospel. Now, what we talk about at Sacred City Church, how we kind of categorize this or, or put handles on it to help us understand what this looks like, we say that the church is a family of missionary servants learning to make disciples in the everyday stuff of life. Now, in this little saying here, you, you can identify four identities that the church owns. First, we are a family, right? We talked about that last week. Uh, then we're a, a family of missionaries, right? So this identity as missionaries living as God's sent ones and servants who live a life of service to one another. And, and learners or disciples is another word you can use, following Jesus and making disciples. And last week we started to dig into these four aspects of our identity, specifically as family. And, and we made up these little field guides. Uh, if you don't have one, you weren't here last week, there, there are still a few available. As you walk out the door, there's a little table there in a basket. Uh, you'll find a, a field guide that helps you work through these identities. I hope you've been using those. Um, and so we've been, we've been digging into our identity as family, that because of the gospel, we are adopted into God's family, that God has become our father, that our brothers and sisters, those who have faith in Christ, are, are brothers and sisters, that we together make the family of God. And, and we fleshed out what this looks like. And, and really the primary way that, that we identify this is that we live together in community, specifically in missional community. Um, that's where we really exercise our identity as God's family. And today we're going to wade through the next piece of our gospel identity as missionaries. Now it's helpful to realize that whatever our identity in, uh, whatever our identity rests in, reveals what our mission in life is. You see, identity and purpose are linked together. Um, any life mission outside of the gospel, is there to maintain or enhance our identity, right? This idea of striving that we have to keep going and going and going to keep ourselves identified as a certain way. For example, if my identity is wrapped up in how good of a teacher or how good of a student I am, then that becomes my mission in life. Um, I'll work long, hard hours studying, doing lesson prep. I'll sacrifice family time, friend time to keep my high marks in the classroom, to keep my performance evaluations up. It will consume my thoughts. It will keep me on a treadmill. All of my energy will, will just be expent on doing that, being a good teacher, being a student. And really my self-evaluation, right, how I see myself is based upon how well I'm doing at that, right? It'll, it'll be based upon my performance in this area. But in the gospel, we are given an identity. We don't earn an identity. 
We are given a new identity. And in fact, we're called Christians. The word Christian was used to describe the people who followed Jesus. And what it really means is little Jesuses. Right? To be called a Christian means that our identity is linked to Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5, actually, if you want to open up with me, that's where we'll be sitting for this, uh, the next few minutes here. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us in verse 17, really this is the heart of this passage, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old man has passed away, and behold, the new man has come. See, so it is by faith in Christ that we are in Christ, we are linked to Christ. His identity becomes ours. And verse 18 goes on to make this clear where this identity comes from. It's not a matter of achieving. He says in verse 18, he says, all of this, this new man, this new creation is from God. And because God gives us a new identity... He also gives us a new life mission. Again, our identity and life mission are linked together. And in fact, in this gospel, this life mission isn't about proving ourselves or establishing ourselves or maintaining our identities. This is a mission that flows out of our identity. It flows out of our identity in the gospel. And I think that this is a big misunderstanding that Christians share, that a lot of times we look at at our life mission or living uh, a certain way that God directs us to live as a matter of cementing or maintaining or keeping our good standing before God. But nothing we do or nothing we fail to do can change, uh, either elevate or reduce our identity in Christ. It is firmly secure because of Christ's finished work. And so it's with our identity that is secure in the gospel. We are freed from having to prove ourselves. But here we are at the same time invited into God's mission. Now if we understand our identity in the gospel, then it should be a joy for us to be about the things that God himself is about. And God lays out his mission for us and what he's all about here in verse 18 and 19. He says, all this is from God, our new identity is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. You see, in short, the the mission of God is to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. Abraham Kuyper famously said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ does not cry, Mine. God is reclaiming all of the world, the people, the physical world, everything that's in it, and claiming it for himself to display his glory. But in order to do that, he must reconcile things to himself, us and the world. Now, this word reconciliation is actually a loaded word. It comes with it a, a, a huge backstory um, because it acknowledges the reality of the major dysfunction in this world the dysfunction between us and others, the dysfunction in the world itself, and the physical fallenness and decay and just deterioration of the world, but ultimately in the brokenness and dysfunction in our relationship with God. It carries a backstory that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. 
And, and many of us are familiar with this story where God created this perfect environment, uh, the perfect world for human thriving. And in doing so, what it did, it displayed God's glory. All of creation, in a sense, the mountains sang of God's word. The trees would bellow of God's mercies. Everything was designed to show what God was like. Now in this, he placed two people, Adam and Eve. And here they thrived to an incredible degree. They had a, literally a perfect marriage. It's hard to even fathom what that's like. Perfect relational bliss. The food they ate was sweet and delicious. There was no extra, you know, thickness in the waistline. It was like good food. You enjoyed it, but it didn't like, it wasn't like poison for your body. It was good for you. They, they got to enjoy the safety of God's protection. In a sense, colors were more vivid. Taste was more expressive in the Garden of Eden. Everything was in abundance. They had everything they need, and ultimately they had intimacy with God. They used to walk with God in the cool of the day. Every day, in the cool of the day, God would come down and he would take a stroll with them. And the only thing that God gave them, as far as a rule or guideline to maintain this order, was this one thing. Don't eat. of. There's one tree in the garden. Don't eat from that one tree. And he said, if you, if you eat from this tree, you'll die. But if you don't eat from it, surely you will live forever. Now, this wasn't complicated ethics, right? I mean, it's one rule. Don't eat from that one tree. And for a long time, Adam and Eve abided by that rule, and they experienced a life of blessing, this unity, this flourishing. Uh, the Hebrew word that's used to describe this is shalom. It's this idea, when we think of shalom, we think of peace. But really, shalom is sort of an all-encompassing word that everything is right. Everything is in its place. Relationship between God and man was perfect. It was right. Relationship between man and man was right. Relationship with the environment and, and the world itself was right. Everything was good and right and perfect. Now, until things began to fall apart, shortly after being tempted by the serpent, Adam and Eve sunk their teeth into the forbidden fruit. They ate and everything started to unravel. Life was no longer this blissful and thriving experience. It became very complicated. Colors and taste became less vivid. Beauty was now marred with pain. Joy now had a counterpart called sorrow. The work that was once enjoyable and fulfilling became a toil, a burden. And, and at the core of this, here, Adam and Eve, we see their relationship. The, not only is the world falling apart in the sense, but their relationship is starting to crumble. The bliss of marriage turns into blame. Adam says, it's, it's Eve's fault for, for eating from this, from this fruit. Creation starts to unravel. Animals start eating animals. Roses grow thorns. There is not one thing that escaped this corruption. Everything had been, had, had, had been fractured from one bite. And it's easy to look at the story and say, you know, it, isn't that kind of like blowing things out of proportion a little bit, right? It's just eating one piece of fruit. But, but at the end of the day, this, this was not about eating a piece of fruit. This was a breach of trust with God. 
Adam and Eve started doubting God's goodness. They started wondering, is God really about what's good for me? Is he really good? Can I really trust him? And when they ate this truth, eat this fruit, what happened is, is they went into hiding. They realized that something had now broken. There was something wrong. And they went into hiding. They avoided God. They no, no longer, when God would come down for his, cool, uh, his walk in the cool of the day, no longer were they ready to meet him. They were hiding out of fear of punishment, which they knew because God had told them, if you eat from this fruit, it will bring about your destruction. From this point on, life for all humans would not be the same. No more walks in the cool of the day. No more knowing the safety of God's complete protection. They were distanced from themselves. And, and ultimately, they were distanced from God. Everywhere they looked, there were shards of brokenness, pain, sorrow, loneliness, sickness, fear, guilt, shame. All of these things now dominated the human experience. Where creation was made to display God's glory, now things were tainted by sin. There was a darkness that set over all of creation. Now all of this deeply grieved God. See, it was God's intention from the beginning that man would live with him in paradise forever. And so God looked at this and his heart was broken that Adam and Eve would turn and turn against him, rebel against his one command. That they would compromise these, this full life that they were living with him and for him for a life lived according to their own agenda. See, that's ultimately what happened here in the fall. They, they, Adam and Eve no longer lived according to God's way. They started living for their own way. They began living life for themselves. And with this, creation rebelled against creator. It started out small with a, a, pe- a bite of a piece of fruit in the garden. And over time, it escalated. Right? Full out, full-fledged rebellion against God. Because God is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. He can't just smooth things over and pretend like it doesn't exist. God must deal with sin in order to maintain his holiness. So what God had to do was remove Adam and Eve from his presence. He had to banish them from the Garden of Eden because it would not end well for them if they stayed in his presence. Anything that is unclean is devoured by God's holiness. And so what God did is he sent them out. But before he sent them out, God clothed them with the hide of animals to cover their nakedness. Now here is one evidence of grace. When we look through this creation story, we we see the brokenness that happens from from Genesis 5, really through the end of Genesis. We just see sin. Not too long after Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel happens, right? Cain kills his brother, murders him in cold blood. We see rebellion, drunkenness, nakedness, sexual confusion. All of these things start to go wrong in God's creation. And instead of God executing Adam and Eve's immediate death, because he said the consequences of sin is death, instead of taking their life, God takes the life of an animal. God finds an animal. He, he, he kills it that that animal's blood would be shed instead of theirs. And with that animal, he takes the hide of the animal and he clothes Adam and Eve as a, as a picture of God clo- covering their sin.
See, the thing about sin is that it always demands blood payment. Sin is blood hungry. But in God's grace, he spared his children's life through the sacrifice and substitutional atonement, right, of the animals. That the animals were killed instead of his children. Now, for decades and generation upon generation, since power and presence would always rule in people's hearts. And with time, people kept moving further and further away from God. There were some points in the history of God's people that they had no regard for God. They would rather do their own thing. They would rather conform themselves to to the cultural trends of other nations, completely abandoning God. God would continue to make a way for his people to be made right for them. Though they sinned greatly, he would provide a sacrifice, provide a a system of atonement to deal with the problem of sin. And animals would be killed in place of people. And so at a point we see God where he he instructs his people to build the tabernacle or, or later on the temple. And in this place, this would basically be a giant slaughterhouse where day in, day out, Hour by hour, animals were being killed in order to sacrifice, to to, to make things right between God and his people. But the problem with this, it was always had a temporary effect, right? If you sin today and you go slaughter an animal in place of your own self, tomorrow you sin, you've got to go do the same thing. It became this temporary, it's like a band-aid over the problem. Now, God was grieved over the inconsistency of relationship between he and his people and the continuation of dysfunction from the fall. You see, as long as sin was present in this world, it carried power with it. Death would always get the final say. That is until God set his plan in motion that he had in place since eternity past, where he would destroy and disable the power of sin once and for all. That God himself would right all of the wrongs of his people. And he would restore the dysfunction of the world back to perfection. See, this is, this is, all of that is what this word reconcile carries with it. That's a lot of baggage. But this time to reconcile, it wouldn't be the blood of an animal. It would be the blood of his own son. That God would send the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the one who would take away the sins of the world. And Jesus would go to the cross and on the cross we would see a perfect sinless man die for the sins of a fallen world. You see, even, even when you go down to, um, chat, uh, to verse 21 of, of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, for, the sake, or for our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, he who knew no sin, that he was perfect, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, on the cross, perfection would be corrupted so the corrupted could be perfected. Now this is what verses 14 and 15 are speaking of here in 2 Corinthians 5. I know I'm jumping kind of around here, but follow along here. He says, he says uh, we've concluded this, that, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him 
who for their sake died and was raised. See, the Apostle Paul is saying that for sin, Jesus died and it was for the sake of our new life that Jesus was raised. Colossians 1.20 says it this way, that Jesus is reconciling to himself all things, not just people, but all things by making peace or shalom, right? That, that gives us a picture going back to the Garden of Eden, by making peace by the blood of his cross. See, it's because Jesus came from heaven. He lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve, that now he, he paves a way for us to go back into Eden, to be reconciled with God. Now, as we repent and believe the gospel, we are reconciled to God and we become part of the restored creation. See, in Jesus, sin no longer has power over us. If our faith is in Jesus, death no longer gets the final word. And one day, when Jesus comes back, he will right all wrongs once and for all. The world will be reset and renewed and made right. And as we live by faith, right, one of the things that we do is we practice repentance. The Apostle Paul says that we keep in step with repentance. This is the work of gospel living. And what this means is we turn away from the futility of living life for ourselves. Right? We, we abandon and forsake our own personal agendas, the own personal missions that we have adopted in our lives. And we begin living for God. See, in being made alive by God, verse 15 says that we are given a new mission in life. You find it in verse 15 that he died for all, and here's the mission, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him. That's our new mission in life, to live for God. Now this, to live for God, doesn't mean we just get reconciled to God as our Heavenly Father, and we stay put, right? There's this, a lot of churches have, have right, I'm reconciled to God, and they become the frozen chosen, they stay put. There's, there's not a lot of involvement. They don't really adopt God's mission. They enjoy the good news of the gospel, but they don't understand how the gospel has a purpose. Tim Keller says that God is like a spiritual tornado. He never brings us in without sending us back out. You see, if you survey the Bible, if you look through the Old Testament stories, all of the heroes of the faith, this is true of everyone. Abraham, Moses, Jonah, David, Isaiah, all of these men and women, they experience who God is. And then God sends them back out. Right? He sends them out on his mission to live for his purposes. Now this idea to live for God, it can be kind of a, an abstract idea, right? It sounds super vague. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean? What does it look like for us to live for God? And again, we come back to this word reconcile, right? Having been reconciled to God, we now work for God as agents of reconciliation. See, that is our mission. That is God's mission. And so our identity being rooted in God, it becomes our mission as well, that we work for the reconciliation of all things. Verse 18 says, 
that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19 says, we have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. Verse 19 goes on to use identity language. He says, therefore, because we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, because we have the message of reconciliation, therefore, you are, that is identity language, you are ambassadors for Christ. Another word you can use here, you are missionaries for God. See, missionaries are people who are about the things that God is about. And God is about reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people hear this word, missionaries, and they think, you know what, being a missionary is only for, you know, the elite Christian, right? Or, or those college kids that come up and they're all fired up for Jesus. I, I had so many friends that came out of college, I'm going to be a missionary, Right? They've got this zeal for Jesus. It's not just for those people. Because 2 Corinthians 5, when, when the Apostle Paul is talking to the, the Corinthians, he's not talking to these elite Christians. In fact, if you go back to read 1 Corinthians, you'll see that these guys are a, lot of, they're a bunch of mess-ups. These are ordinary people. They've got sin issue. They've got all these things that are not necessarily going right in their life. These are normal Christians. And so in this way, we know that every gospel-believing person on earth is a missionary. Now think of this. Everybody is already evangelizing, right? That, that's a word, evangelizing. That's, that's a, a word of speaking the good news, promoting something. Everybody is already an evangelist of something, right? You go to a restaurant, you love it, what are you going to do? You're going to tell your friends about it, Right? You get a new product, cleaning product, Norwex or whatever the, the business is. You're going to tell your friends about it. New diet. You're going to tell your friends. You're going to evangelize. You're going to promote something. It's already part of our, our normal life. It's a matter of what we're evangelizing, what we're sharing about. Now, Charles Spurgeon famously said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That's part of our DNA. That's part of our identity. Now, like I said, most people hear this word missionary and they think uh, mostly in terms of global mission. Somebody who, who's very zealous for the gospel, they, they raise money, they move to a, a poor country, they study a foreign language, they do Bible studies, they, they make humanitarian efforts. We think of people like Hudson Taylor and Jim Elliott and, and Ad, Adorium Judson. Right? We're thinking in terms of global mission, going somewhere far away from home and bringing the gospel to people who don't know it yet. Now, this is right for us to think this way, right? God has a global mission. I hope that in the life of Sacred City Church that we will have the privilege of sending out missionaries to places that have not been reached yet. But to think exclusively in terms of, of global mission excludes nearly 99% of Christians in general, let alone our own congregation. Now to think globally about missions exclusively assumes that being a missionary is only for the top tier of Christians, right? Those who are really fired up. It assumes geographical limitations and coordinates, right? Maybe you've heard of the 1040 window, right? This, this area over uh, Asia of North Africa targeting Muslims and Hindu people. 
Right? That's what we tend to think of when we think of missionaries. Now, something really interesting happened. After, after a series of uh, the first and second great awakenings in, in a season where God had brought renewal to the United States in some ways that were just incomprehensible, the spirit was at work sending missionaries. There was a huge missionary movement. And one of these missionaries who went to start a, a big ministry overseas, he came back on furlough one time came back to the States, and, and he had this startling realization. He said the mission field was no longer across the pond. The mission field was now here in our backyards. See, where the United States was at one point the primary sender of missionaries in the world, he was now identifying that the United States needs missionaries just as much, if not more, than any other country in the world. Because here we see Christianity on the decline. And it's even true today, even though we're maybe 150 years detached from that, we see to be labeled as an evangelical Christian is typically more of a socio-political descriptor than it is a theological affiliation, right? It's a descriptor about which way you're probably going to vote. He realized that to be, evangel to be evangelistic Christian no longer meant what it once did. Now we can look at the United States and, and think of these big cities that are known for their, their wayward culture, cultures that are typically resistant to Christians that have adopted a more socio-liberal understanding of life. Right? It's resorted to paganism. Although, let me just clear up, the United States has never been a Christian nation, right? But there have been Christian overtones, undertones. And some of these big cities have departed from these things that the United States was known for. We think of Portland, San Francisco, Las Vegas, Seattle, New York, these big epicenters where lots of people are. And certainly these great cities are in great need of the gospel. But let me just share something with you. Barna, over the course of... Um, 10 years, had put together a, a, um, an audit of the United States, surveying the, the top cities that are unchurched. Right? Now, when they're talking about unchurched cities, they're talking about people who have not participated uh, in even just going once, with the exception of Christ Christmas or Easter, that have not participated in gathering together with a body of uh, faith. Now, in this study, Barna identified the Quad Cities as the number 27 metro area that is unchurched. Number 27. The Quad Cities is rated higher than St. Louis, Chicago, Detroit. Big cities we're talking about. And what we see here, what this survey showed, that 42% of the people in our city are not connected to any sort of religious community from week to week. Now let me just give you some, some numbers here. That means over 42,500 people just on the Illinois side of the river are detached from Jesus. They're not part of a Christian body. 
These people have names and faces. They have stories. These are your friends, your gym partners, your neighbors, your coworkers, even family members. These are people that live 100 yards from our front door as a church. They don't have any connection to the church. They don't know who Jesus is. And so what we can see here is the mission field is not over there somewhere. The mission field is amongst us right here. It's all over us, all over the place. One of the things that we left hanging up on the wall when we acquired this building is when you walk out the main doors, there's a sign above it that says, you are now entering your mission field. That's true. That's true because we are missionaries in this city. Our city needs missionaries. There are people outside of these walls that are longing for Jesus. Maybe they don't know it yet. They've got these desires that, that they're looking for things and people, relationship, uh, wealth to sort of fill this desire, fill these needs that they have inside of them. But what they're finding is that they cannot sustain it. Right? They're discovering that they need Jesus. They just don't know exactly what that means. Along with creation, they are groaning for all things to be made right. Every human being has these hunger pains inside of us. We all can identify things are not right. Now when we understand all this, when we understand that, that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, that we're in the midst of a city that needs Jesus, just think, how does this view, how does this change the way that we go to work? How does this change what we do at the gym or in our schools, in our neighborhood, how does this change? See, the gospel gives us a new perspective on life. It, it helps us to see things through a missionary lens. These aren't just places where you do life. These are places where Jesus wants, actually Jesus, because you're there, Jesus has his foot in the door there. And Jesus wants to do a work of renewal and reconciliation through you. In fact, this is what Paul says. He says, um, where's he say it? He says it somewhere. He says, he says something. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Because we're there. God is at work already. In fact, before we even showed up, God was already at work. And now as, as missionaries, he calls us into what he's already doing and reconciling the world to himself. See, Jesus doesn't wait for those who are lost to come into the church. Jesus sends his church out to the world. When we understand this, when we understand that we in the gospel, are sent missionaries, that we are a missionary to the place where we already are, where life is happening around us, to the people who you already have relationship. This changes the way things. In fact, it makes us go back to, to God. God the Father sent Jesus the Son, who has now sent us to be salt and light in a dark world. Now think about this. How does, how does this change the way you look at or understand the people in your life? 
I think it's easy to look at our coworkers and our friends and, and look and examine their life and say, you know what, they, they really don't have it too bad. Like their life seems pretty together. They're stable. Their families are good. Steady job. Listen, and all of this is God's grace to them. But if they do not know about the saving grace of Jesus, this common grace doesn't mean anything. In fact, the author of Ecclesiastes says that all this stuff that we acquire in this life is like vapor. It's here for a moment and gone. But it's the, the steadfast saving work of Jesus that endures for eternity. See, now what matters here is knowing people's story. Actually, Paul, in, in verse 16, it's very interesting here what he says. He says, therefore, oh, where am I? He says, from, on, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him as thus no longer. Now, what Paul is saying here, is that external, ex, external um, expressions, external factors can be misleading. Paul himself was misled about who Jesus was and until Jesus came and knocked him off his horse, gave him a vision of his glory. But in the same way that we can misjudge people when we look at their external circumstances. And so in this case, we have to know people's story. We have to know what they're craving, what their desires are, what their fears, what their hopes are. And in knowing these stories, what happens is we develop a heart for the lost. To be indifferent to the lost people in our city is to be indifferent to the gospel ourselves. Now, Paul carried this burden. He was so burdened for unbelievers. In fact, in, in verse 20, he says, uh, as ambassadors for Christ, God's making his appeal through us. Therefore, we, Im we implore you on behalf of Christ. Right? Imploring is like this idea of begging that, that I desire for you so much that I'm begging you to be reconciled to God through Christ. Now what this does, when we have this inside of us, this changes the way that we pray. This changes the way we view our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, but it changes the way that we pray for them, that we ask God to move in their life in a way that we cannot generate, right? God is the one who gives faith to believe, and so we petition God and ask, but we also go to them and we, we present the gospel to them in meaningful ways. Now let me just say this. Before we talk, before we start sharing the gospel, there, there's been a travesty with, with gospel tracts and just like this gospel message blast, right? You're a sinner and Jesus loves you, right? It, it can put people on blast and feel very disorienting for people. I think one of the first things that we need to do in order to be a good missionary is to shut up. Like literally, like we stop talking and we become good listeners. Francis Schaeffer said that if I had only an hour with someone, I would spend the first 55 minutes listening to what was concerning their heart and their mind. And then maybe at the end of that, I would have five minutes to speak meaningful truth into their life. See, as good missionaries, we must be good listeners. And to be good listeners, we not only have to listen to people's stories, but we have to know how their stories fit in the narrative of God's overarching story. Right, we listen to our, 
our friends and our neighbors, but we listen to God and his spirit. We're sensitive to what the spirit is doing with us, where these longings, desires, those fears, their hopes, and knowing how to speak truth into them. Now, understanding that you're a missionary will change your perspective on everyday things. Going to work is no longer about getting a paycheck. Right? Going to the gym is no longer about getting a good sweat in. These are mission fields. As a missionary, you realize that your life isn't about you. It's about God. It's about his mission. And therefore, you're okay when disruption comes, when your schedule is knocked off. Right? When someone comes to you and they're having a hard time and they, they want to... A confidant. They want somebody to, to, to share themselves with. It's okay. Yard work even. It's no longer a waste of time. Scooping snow is no longer a waste of time. It, what it does, it's a visual representation of the beauty of the gospel where creation is restored. Money. right? It changes the way that we view money. Money is you no longer... A competing God it no longer competes for our affections. Money becomes a missionary tool that can blow holes in the gates of hell. My home. Our homes are no longer a safe place. My dinner table is no longer just for familiar faces. It's a means of hospitality to bring people in to share my life with them. Right, even eating lunch at work, right? You don't just sit at the break table by yourself, put your headphones in, right? You share meals with other people. You're intentional with the time and the rhythms that you already have in life. Now, let me just ask you if you really understood your identity as a missionary, how would your life change? Right? What would be different? Now, a lot of people tend to think, I've got to add some programs and maybe start coming to the church a little bit more and doing some outreach, some organized outreach. And I think there's a place for some of that stuff. But what it means to live as a missionary is to redeem the everyday stuff that you're already doing. You're going to eat t about 21 times a week. Why not share one of those meals with an unbeliever? Get to know their story. You've got to study why not do it with someone who doesn't know Jesus yet? You've got to go to the grocery store. You're going to go to the library. You're going to go to kids' museum. You're going to do this house project. Why not invite other people into your life? Better yet, why not step into some of that stuff that other, you know other people have going on? Offer your help finishing a bathroom or whatever. See, being a missionary isn't about adding more stuff to our life. It's about being intentional with the time that we already have. And as we live in this, see, the, the, there's a travesty that happens when, when Christians live as missionaries or they think they're living as missionaries and they're pretending like they have everything together. See, part of being a good missionary is showing your weakness. There is nothing less appealing in this world than a Christian who doesn't think they need Jesus. How repulsive is that? Some arrogant, smug Christian, I've got everything figured out. That is not going to, that's not winsome. See, what our friends are experiencing is, is weakness and vulnerability and need. 
And so as Christians, we can relate to that, but we actually have the solution. Though in the gospel, we find strength. In the gospel, we're made whole. In the gospel, we're fortified and safe and secure. Now, when I talk about being missionaries, I know there, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. There's a lot of fears that surround this living in this identity. We think, you know what, I, it sounds nice, but I just don't know what to say. I don't know how to do this. I might be scared of what, what people might think of me. Thinking like I'm not a good enough Christian to like represent Jesus. That's, that's a little out of my pay grade. And then there's like the, the looming question of what if I fail? Right? What if I, I'm living on mission, I'm sharing the gospel, and this person never comes to faith? Now, I don't want to minimize these fears because I think, I think there's a reality to them that, that's true. Right? We are a little bit out of our element when it comes to mission. There is a reality that we aren't sufficient in ourselves to maintain this. But let me, as I'm closing here, let me, let me lay before you some helpful realizations that maybe would, would help you step out as missionaries. First of all, let me, let me take the weight of the world off your shoulders and tell you that it is not your job to save people. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus, as we sang in the, in the song that professed, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. Right, so in this sense, it's not our responsibility to save people. It's our responsibility to point to Jesus. And we do this with our life, right, in our own experience. We can share our own experiences and how Jesus has intervened in our life and saved us from our sin. Right, we don't need to have this poetic expression of, of what Jesus has done. Or not. We can just share our own story. See, our job as missionaries is to point to Jesus. And this is what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus, is to point to him. And not to, not to rob Jesus of the spotlight. Jesus is the one who saves. It is the Spirit of God who regenerates hearts. It's our job just to be faithful in pointing to Jesus. Like sharing Jesus. And some of you might think, I don't even know how to share Jesus. I'm afraid I'm going to open my mouth and a bunch of gibberish is going to come out. Or something that's not going to make sense. Say something wrong. Now let me just share this brief story with you here. Before Jesus ascended into heaven... He's gathered his disciples. Matthew 28 ends with the Great Commission telling them to, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's given them this, this big mission, right, to go tell, to be his witness to the ends of the earth. Now, the di disciples themselves, they're, they're not like an A-team here. Like, these are fishermen, these are tax, tax collectors, these are zealots. These aren't people who, who have uh, affluence. These aren't people who, who the rest of the culture is looking up to. In fact, they're, they're kind of just nobodies. And they're sitting there. Jesus says, hey, you guys are going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And then Jesus kind of shoots up in the sky. And they're like, what are we going to do? And they're sitting there and they're praying. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God comes down upon them. Pentecost happens. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And here with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives them power and takes 12 really bizarre men and empowers them to change the world. Literally change the world. 
our world is not the same today as if those 12 men weren't who they were or did what they did or the Spirit didn't fill them up in the way that, that God uh, appointed, our world would be completely different. Jesus said in Acts 1.18 that the Spirit would fill them with power which would enable them to witness to the ends of the earth. The same is true of the Spirit today. See, the power to live as missionaries isn't mustered up from within ourselves. The power to live as missionaries is derived from God. He is the power source that drives us as missionaries. And so in this way, we must learn to depend upon the Spirit of God and trust that in the Spirit we have everything that we need for life and godliness and mission. The Spirit is the one that gives us the words to say. In fact, if you go through Acts 2, when Peter gets up and delivers his first giant sermon, it's the Spirit who enables him to say the things that he's supposed to say. The Spirit gives the words. The Spirit gives compassion. The Spirit gives us patience. The Spirit gives us power. The Spirit gives us the faithfulness and the devotion to stick with it. Listen, God will not put you in a missional circumstance and leave you high and dry. Wherever he sends you, he is there to empower through the Spirit. And for those of you who are concerned about what other, th- what other people think of you, right? Like to live all in for Jesus, to, be, to live as a missionary, to live as a family. Right? We're just, there's this general concern with how, do other peop- how will other people see me? And let me just, if this is you, you need to t- stop taking yourself so seriously. For real. Like, stop taking yourself so seriously. Your identity is already secure in Jesus. If you want to be serious about something, be serious about where your identity rests. In fact, Paul, when he starts off this passage, he, there's this big question about Paul. Like, why are you living the way that you're living, Paul? You, you're kind of like a weirdo. In verse 13, I think that's where he starts off. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, right, what they're talking about, if if I'm living crazy, if what I'm doing is out of the norm of the world, if I'm living beside myself, it is for God. But if I'm pulled back and reserved, if I'm not bought into the mission of God, if I'm not living as a missionary, I'm living for you. The question is here, who is Paul about pleasing? Does he desire to please man or does he desire to please God? And because his identity is secure in God, he's, I would dare to even say, delighted to be viewed as a fool for the sake of the gospel. There's also this sense, right? If we have this fear of losing relationship, maybe sharing the gospel with somebody, they push us away, and now we're a Christian weirdo. Maybe we're family, cuts us off, whatever the case. Jesus promises whatever we lose in this life will be given back to us tenfold. That's the promise of the gospel. Whatever we lose in this life, Jesus will replace in the new heavens, new earth, 
tenfold. There is a delight and a joy in living on mission. As I close, let me just remind you here. As gospel people, as missionaries of the gospel, we do not live in this way to prove to God that we are on his team. We don't live this way to, to really shore up our identity in Christ. It's already been secured. If, if we understand the gospel, we know that God is so satisfied with us in Christ that we don't have to prove ourselves. But out of this flows mission. We can say along with Paul in verse 15, it is the love of Christ that controls us. It is because we are loved in Christ that we love as Christ loved us. And what this starts with is loving our church family as we addressed last week. But this rolls out beyond the invisible lines of the church here and goes to those who are longing to know about Jesus. And we pray that by God's grace they would come to know the love of God for themselves. That they would know that that God for our sake made him to be sin who knew no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. That God would reconcile the world to himself. And that by God's grace in the gospel, the family of God would increase. That there would be a, a plentiful harvest. That we would get to pull back these curtains here. Do you guys know behind these curtains is a giant baptismal tank. It's beautiful. To baptize people who are coming to know the real love of God. That should be our desire as missionaries. To see the family expand. Now we're going to take the Lord's table here. This morning together. And the Lord's table is a visual reminder that God has reconciled us. And he is reconciling the world to himself through his son. That in the blood of Christ, all sin is dealt with. And he is making all things new. And friends, it begins with us. It's an internal growth that happens. He's making us. He's conforming us to the image of his son. And this meal is the sustenance to that growth to that forward movement. This is the meal that sustains us as missionaries in our city. And so we come to receive with joy. And if you're not yet a believer, if you don't understand the gospel yet, and maybe you desire to know, right? maybe this sounds good, and you, you long to know the love of God, I want to invite you this morning, instead of taking the elements, to take Christ. To turn to him, to, to repent of living away, living a life that's all about you and for your own mission, and jump on God's mission because it is this mission of God to reconcile the world, to make you right. So I want to extend that invitation to you today. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for the work of Christ, knowing that he left heaven to come to earth as the primary missionary to the world. There is no greater missionary example than Jesus Christ himself who would lay down all of his riches, all of the joys, all the delight in heaven to empty himself and to become like us. And in becoming like us, he lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve to live. And in this, you made us right. You cleanse us of our sin. You reestablished our identity in something that is secure. That you are promising Eden for us once again. Where all things are made right. And that is something that everybody is desiring. When all things 
are made right, that everything sad comes untrue. Father, would you do a supernatural work in us? Would the work begin with us as Christians today and send us out, fuel us up as missionaries in this city? We pray this in your glorious, gracious name. Amen.